All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. How do you like school here? Um, I really like it. It gives me an opportunity to fulfill my dream of becoming a nature or wildlife biologist. You already have a dream like that, to be a nature or wildlife biologist? I had no yeah. idea. When did that happen? Um, just a few, like, a few days ago. Just a few days ago? Yeah. Wow. And so how is alt school helping you reach that dream? Tell me. Um, some kids really, when they wake up in the morning, they say, when is it school time? I do that, too, because the school is really fun. We have an opportunity to do what we want, choose our path. Instead of the teacher making a choice for us, mm-hmm. we get to choose our path. Yes, friends, this is a very well-spoken nine-year-old explaining why she is so into her new school. Her name is Piper. She's blonde, freckled, precocious, and she used to go to my son's public school in Brooklyn. Now she's enrolled with the help of financial aid in an experimental school called Alt School. The founder is Max Ventilla. He's a former Google executive with a vision to transform education in America. That's what we want desperately as a country for the United States to have the best education to be the one that the most kids are getting rather than the one that the fewest kids are getting. Max has founded companies before, and you're going to hear more from him later. But yeah, he thinks he's got a way to fix our schools, starting one kid at a time and then scaling. Here's NPR's education reporter Anya Kamenetz describing the long game for Max Ventilla's enterprise. They have a giant promise, which is that the right software system, the right operating system, is going to transform teaching and learning across the country, across the world. You know, what it ultimately means is that they have shareholders to satisfy. They have growth targets to make. We're going to hear more from Anya, too. Now, as you know, I am also a skeptic of tech being the answer to all of society's problems. But if a radical new way of teaching kids was being prototyped up the road from me, didn't I have a responsibility as a tech journalist and a parent to investigate? Hell yeah. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi. This week, when Silicon Valley wants to apply the personalization that software can offer to kids in the classroom, can a tech startup engineer a better system to transform teaching and learning everywhere and make money? So alt school isn't your typical private school. It's raised over $100 million in funding from investors including Mark Zuckerberg and Mark Andreessen. Tuition is up to thirty grand a year, but many families, about 40%, get some financial aid. 
The company has eight so-called micro-schools. These are outposts in New York, Palo Alto, and San Francisco, with Chicago coming next year. Each of these micro-schools has between 30 to 120 students, so pretty small. And the facilities are minimal, usually just a few rooms. There's no separate gym or music room. I went to visit the alt school near me, above a restaurant a couple neighborhoods away. I went there twice. <laughs> Your lunchbox will go in this bin right... No, this way. You're Ellie, right? Yeah. All right. This <laughs> a few steps. So on the first day of school, things were pretty low-tech. There were just those three classrooms, one for preschoolers, the other two for lower and upper elementary kids. Each of them had soft carpeting, wooden blocks, art supplies, big cushions to lounge on. Okay. Kids who were in this class last year, how did we show that we wanted to say something? We put a thumb in the air. Can we agree When I went back a couple of weeks later... Hey, welcome back. Hey, thank you. It's like to be here. The laptops and iPads had been given out to the kids. Now it kind of looked like a stereotypical tech startup, but with kids for founders. Millimeters. Do you have one? Whoa, what are you looking at? Uh, top okay. ten world biggest sinkholes. Oh my gosh, those are really deep. Are you, is this choice time or science time? What is it? Oh, science uh, time. I finished my work. Now I'm going to watch a science video mm-hmm. on YouTube. Almost the same as his. What are you going to look up sinkholes to? Whoa! Guatemala City, Guatemala. World's smallest Minecraft house. Yep. I struggled a lot in school. Reading, writing, math really weren't my strong suits. Mara Pauker is the head of the alt school in Brooklyn. And as a kid, she didn't really like school. But later, in college, Mara began studying education itself. She learned about different philosophies, different learning styles, and she decided to become a teacher. Um, And I realized that there was a more open-ended way, less structured, um, but equally as rigorous and important. And so I dove into that side um, that is a Reggio Emilia-based philosophy of education. And it just kind of gets you to think outside of the box and think of children as partners instead of these little buckets that you have to fill with information and pass them across the factory line. Yeah. So when you first heard the name Alt School and learned about it, what seemed like its biggest difference compared to what you'd experienced so far? I think I was most intrigued by the technology only because I am by nature a documenter of student learning and I'm always seeking different opportunities and methods to capture what's happening. And I felt like alt school was kind of pitching this to me as an educator. Okay, so what does that look like? Can you specifically tell us, like, what does that even mean? We have something called a playlist. And the playlist is a set of activities that teachers have created for students based on things that they're interested in. So it's almost like a placeholder or a schedule. Just as we adults look at our Google calendars, Mm -hmm. they kind of help so kids organize themselves. So then they might go over to the shelf and find the printing book. If it's a child who needs more support, perhaps those materials are already set out and they physically just have to go to that area. And then a more concrete example in terms of small group work might be that there's a research group who's studying the earth. And each one of those three students might have the same card on their playlist. But then behind the scenes, it might be that they're working on achieving different skill sets. So one child might be looking at the math side of the problem. Another child might actually be looking at mapping 
looking and a third might be looking at the literacy components. So teachers are able to mark and assess the students against the personal goals that they're working on while arriving at the activity, like through the same objective. And there's no homework or grades. Is that right? That's right. It's interesting. Like there's no homework for the kids, but it sounds like there's a lot of homework for the teachers, right? To come up with these playlists to, you know, if you've got a bunch of kids, like, and they each, you're doing something different with each of them. How does that work? Yeah, but there is a centralized database. So if there's a teacher at a San Francisco school who's done something around readers or writers workshop or they've done something around like I'll go back to that earth example and there's a science lesson that other teachers can pull from and then if we tag them um, we can add keywords and things so they're easily searchable gotcha okay so I mean this is all still relatively new this is only year two when prospective parents come to look at the school what what would you say is their number one concern I think that the number one concern is how um, we're perceived as being a school on the screen. Um, And they want to be sure that their children aren't going to come into school and not interface with any other children. The philosophy at Alt School is that by tracking kids' resilience, their curiosity, self-direction, creativity, critical thinking, that, over time, builds a more thorough picture of a student. So that stuff can seem kind of mushy in the abstract. But when they track it with data points, it brings the whole child into focus, or it's supposed to, all of their strengths and weaknesses, both academic and social. What happens to all the data? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the great components of capturing all of this year after year is that the data actually gets passed to the next teacher. And so it it just creates a more comprehensive profile of each student. And so that information actually follows them over time and it gets stored (laughs) somewhere, but it's accessible if the teachers need to. And is it going back to base? Because I know part of this is you are in some ways a research lab as well, right? So is it going back to the valley and they're parsing over it and making changes? Yeah, and eventually we will have third-party schools who will kind of take the platform that we're building right now. So hopefully one day there will be public schools or charter schools or other independent schools who can use these different platforms. Another question I have, recording what goes on in the classroom. Does that happen? Because I know part of it is looking back and saying, how could we have changed what happened? Is that correct? If you go into any of the classrooms, you'll see cameras. So as you know, a student, you're always being videotaped, but nobody's really watching it. It's not like a live stream where somebody's like sitting in an office and like monitoring what's happening in the classrooms, but rather teachers can go back and bookmark different moments throughout the day. So if you know it, you know, 10.05, you led an awesome morning meeting or your morning meeting was actually quite horrible and you just want to go back and revisit and figure out why and what you could have done differently. We have the capacity to go back and revisit the video and get the sound bites to see what could have been done differently and to learn from it. This this video, again, is just something that is part of Alt School's DNA. Any school that you walk into, there's a big sign by the front door that says you're entering a learning lab. So the constant videotaping kind of creeped me out, but apparently the Reggio Emilia approach typically uses photography and video to document kids' progress at school. So Alt School just installs the technology to make it less cumbersome for the teachers. Mara says she has lots of public school teacher friends who have classrooms of up to 40 kids, and they ask her a lot of questions, and they want to know, when will the Alt School stop being a learning lab? 
They want to know when it will start making its software, those playlists, the portals, available to other schools, places where they don't have the resources and personal attention that a $30,000 per year tuition can buy. But coming up, we'll talk to NPR education reporter Anya Kamenetz about her concerns that alt school isn't just about education. It's about making money. And that's the beauty of Silicon Valley, right? It's like Willy Wonka land. You know, they're just like, what could we do if we could do anything? Hey, here's $100 million. And founder Max Ventilla pushes back on our ambivalence. Not to be confrontational, but I don't subscribe to the idea that, you know, the world is a kind of miserable place and kids should get used to it. (laughs) We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Samarodi. And we're talking about the alt school, which is sort of Montessori school 2.0. It's been profiled in The New Yorker and other places, but I first heard about it when my son's classmate Piper transferred there. We also have big pillows that people can sit on. Cozy. Yeah. And we have cozy chairs. And we have a nice, really cozy rug. That looks, that rug does look very cozy. Okay, I have another question for you. So Piper was super happy at this school. I mean, who wouldn't be? Students get a ton of adult attention. They get their own laptop, cozy pillows, chairs, and rugs. But what about Piper's mom? Cindy Jording says it's been an adjustment more for her than Piper. So I think that the school could be a good fit for any child. It might be a hard fit for parents. Why? Because it's so different. Like, for us, we didn't think she was learning anything because she would come home, we played this today, we played that. I'm like, are you just playing all day? What's going on? And then all of a sudden, she would tell us these amazing facts. Or I would say, oh, I have this math worksheet. Can you do this? And she'd be like, of course. And then she would just bust out this long division worksheet. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I'm, you know, I feel better. It's just, it's so personal and it's so caring and nurturing for the kids. A lot of resources needed. That's true. That's very true. (laughs) I think that a lot of money that goes toward the more regimented, testing-based charter schools could be going to some more project-based, Montessori, um, you know, Regio-based charter schools that you don't have the testing to look at, but you have happy, smart kids who love to learn. Oh, school's starting. Happy, smart kids who love to learn. That sounds amazing. Surely we can all agree that the answer is personalized learning. Okay, so like any term that's part of Silicon Valley hype, it's always in danger of being co-opted and exploited. (laughs) Anya Kamenetz covers education for NPR. She's also written several books on how education intersects with technology and innovation. We talk about learning styles. We talk about at your own pace, in your own time, and, you know, just in time. And I think as so many other realms of the economy have transformed toward flexibility and increasing personalization, I mean, one of the major tenets of what technology does for, you know, consumer services, right, is mass customization. Right. Not only is education going in that direction, but our entire society is going in that direction. It's a major, major trend. And so the fantasy, I think, that keeps popping up is a notion that there'll be some kind of magic Spotify playlist for education, for learning. 
right? That the child <laughs> is going to come and, and, and open up this magic box or this magic tr- Jiminy Cricket at the age of one years old, and it'll have everything that they need to learn, and it'll learn alongside them. When All School was founded, you know, they raised $100 million. I sat in a you know, room with Max Ventilla, you know, one of the founders of All School, and he kind of took me through his deck, as it was at the time, about, you know, what is their promise to investors? And their promise was a new operating system for education. And so All School is not wow. just a school, right? It's a tech startup with dozens of engineers, and they have a giant promise, which is that the right software system, the right operating system is going to transform teaching and learning, not just in these little boutique private schools, but across the country, across the world. You know, and, you know, what it ultimately means is that they have shareholders to satisfy. They have growth targets to make. And part of the way that they're doing that, you know, they are surveilling every move these kids make, right? They're videotaping them. They're audio taping them. They're capturing all of this information about their day-to-day. I get why, as a teacher, you might want to work really closely with a software engineer. As an ed tech engineer, you might want to work really closely with a teacher. But how do we make sure that that's being done in a fair way, right, that's balancing the benefits for both sides? I mean, I guess I wonder, like, the public school system doesn't – social services, they don't seem to have the funds to be able to do this kind of work. And so isn't that just what's happening all across America, that the private sector is stepping in, putting big dollars behind research that we hope, crossed fingers, will eventually trickle down to the rest of the nation? I mean – I, I, I definitely see that. I also feel that there is actually amazing research being done in universities, which have the right alignment of interests on ed tech, on learning and technology, and for the right reasons. So I don't think we have to give it up totally to the companies and the startups. The other thing I guess it begs the question is, I mean, it's a very small number of kids who are enrolled at alt schools as we speak. And I'm going to bet you that it's not representative of the nation's students. And, I mean, I take that representation issue really seriously because, you know, what we're kind of starting to grapple with as a country is that the experiences that kids bring into the classroom because of their upbringing, their environments, the trauma they may have witnessed, their neuroatypical uh-huh. nature. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's always something that stymies any research into education, this notion. I mean, same thing with evaluating charter schools, right? Are they creaming the crop? Are they taking the parents who are the most interested, even if they're not parents of means? I mean, part of me is like, well, you got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm not saying that they should be put out of business or they shouldn't exist, right? It's just how much are we going to learn from that environment versus potentially, you know, something like the summit schools in Silicon Valley, which yeah. is a chain, right? Of, what are they? Tell us about the so, summit schools. So they are a pretty well-established group of charter schools. It's also kind of under the same umbrella of individualized learning, playlists. They actually have collaborated with Facebook engineers and brought out a type of software already available to teachers this past year to assist teachers in kind of putting into practice this personalized learning idea. And so they've had the R&D lab, but with, you know, a more classic kind of urban student population. Better situation, do you think? The more, the better, right? And, you know, and I wouldn't write off the school districts. I think that there's interesting stuff happening at school districts all across the country where people are kind of taking notice of what's available and what's possible and, and trying to experiment. Did you visit an old school classroom? I visited. They actually have a classroom, a school located in their headquarters in Dogpatch in South San Francisco. So when I was interviewing the engineers and the founders, they had a, like a group of seventh graders doing yoga. <laughs> of course they did. Um, and what did you observe? Like, what was your visit like? And I don't know for me if it's like this idea of, um, oh, well, you know, you just put some 
cushy cushions all around and personalized and optimized. And I don't know. <laughs> there's something very like, yeah, sort of. Well, like, just taking all the culture of the tech world, which is becoming sort of a parody of itself, and putting mm-hmm. it in a school seems like sort of slightly blasphemous. Is that <laughs> what it is that's bothering me? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think it's just a taste thing. I think it to me, it's as someone who covers education and has become, you know, somewhat cynical and jaded over many years of <laughs> like silver bullet approach after silver bullet approach. And as I you know, start to cover the public school system more where, you know, nine out of 10 kids are enrolled, I sort of say like, gee, this is a really great illustration of what you can do with completely unlimited resources. And that is so not applicable to what we have to face right. in terms of transforming learning. It's like they're on the space station. Something, it's not reality. It's just not reality, right? And that's the beauty of Silicon Valley, right? It's like Willy Wonka land. You know, they're just like, what could we do if we could do anything? Hey, here's $100 million. <laughs> okay, so your daughter just started kindergarten. Yeah. Would you... Let's say money was not an issue. And <laughs> right. I was like, Anya, we've got this slot at alt school. Right. And you weren't a tech reporter. So there was no conflict of interest. <laughs> no this conflict this, of interest. You know, go back to the Willy Wonka world that you were right. talking about. This, right. this fantasy world where it's paid for, no conflict of interest. Would you take it? Um, I would. I would love to play around with the notion of free and open, progressive, personalized education. I think my daughter would get a ton out of it. Um, I sort of am on I have my own hobby horse because I feel like, you know, what I really care about in her early education is the community that we're a part of, being in a school that's mm. diverse. You know, our school is, uh, you know, more than half Hispanic. She's in a dual language program. Mm. It's embedded in her neighborhood history. So that would, it would be a lot for me to give that up, even for the shiniest, coolest model on the block. But that's a very personal choice. And that is the question that kept dogging me as I got further into reporting on alt school. What personal choice would I make? If I could afford alt school, would I send my kids there? I'm Max Ventilla. I'm the CEO and founder of Alt School, and I'm sitting here in the KQED studio in San Francisco. So, of course, Max is going to defend his product. But he's also a parent, and so I was curious to hear his personal take on optimizing education for the masses. I mean, I think, the you know, the big question, whether you're a journalist or with kids or a parent who goes to visit um, that comes in is, you know, would I send my kid here? Right. Like that's, of course, I can't help but question that. And part of me is like, well, right now it just doesn't look like reality. Like this personalization that those kids get. I don't know. There's something about like my kid having to deal with kids of very different economic means. Also, not everybody is nice to him at school. Maybe some teachers should be, but they're not. I don't know. There's something about um, it felt very wonderful, but not real. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different questions kind of buried in that. You know, first off, Mm -hmm. not to be confrontational, but I don't subscribe to the idea that, you know, the world is a kind of miserable place and kids should get used (laughs) to it. I I don't. I think that childhood can be a magical time. I think that it's a real shame that this period where you're becoming the kind of person you're going to be for a very long time and you have this room and support structure to help you isn't pleasant, isn't effective, doesn't help you to be a successful adult in the modern world. So for starters, I think that if we do a good job 
helping kids be introspective, helping them be entrepreneurial, helping them be conscientious, giving them that broad foundation of skills and experiences that everyone should have while also allowing them to go deep on the things that they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. That's a kid who's going to be successful in high school and in college and anything else that they might do later on. Mm-hmm. The other notion is there are a lot of misnomers when you say personalization. You know, this is not digital learning. The whole challenge for us is how do you – personalizing the digital world is easy. Personalizing the non-digital world is hard. Mm where they care enough about the subject matter to push themselves and to stick with it. And so, you know, when I look at that experience and you say, well, that's not real, I think there are aspects to it that are very real. I think that the inside of an old school classroom resembles the inside of my kind of modern workplace far more than the the kind of education that I got. Mm. I don't think it's necessarily what people were used to. But again, I don't think the future is going to be like the past. And so I don't, I don't know why the inside of a classroom should be the same as it was. Max also told me that he doesn't think kids and their needs in this day and age are the same either. In a nutshell, I think it's the kind of rate of change. You know, for our grandparents, you know, parenting our parents, you kind of did have a roadmap mm. of, you know, what a happy, successful life would look like. And change is happening so fast now on a global scale that... I don't have that roadmap Mm. for my daughter. And so in the absence of a roadmap, you kind of need a compass. So when I thought about kind of what qualities I would hope school engendered in her, it was that introspection to know herself and the kind of entrepreneurism to actually kind of bend the world around her in a way that actually was good, not just for her, but for the people that she was with. I mean, that's so interesting to me because it sounds as though you're saying the fact that you have this perspective, this tech, the Silicon Valley perspective on knowing yourself, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, knowing how to drive yourself going forward, almost makes you, I won't say more qualified than people who are already in education, but it's almost saying by virtue of the fact that you're not in that world, that's what is needed because of this rate of change as you just described. You know, it's crazy to think that a bunch of technologists and non-educators would be able to be part of a kind of transformative solution in education, given the complexity of, you know, running bad schools, let alone good schools, without working with amazing educators who really know what it is to motivate and to relate to kids and to kind of day in and day out, you know, make it work in practice. And so I don't think it's one or the other. We've relied from the earliest days on that intense partnership between career teachers and non-teachers. But I do think that most people would agree that the purpose of school is to prepare kids for what's coming, not what was. What's coming for alt school in the long term is unclear. There's a lot of competition in this field, and alt school is still a startup. The majority of tech startups don't succeed. Who knows? Maybe down the road, those Brooklyn parents will have to look for a new school for their kids. In the meantime, though, they can enjoy the Willy Wonka version of education circa 2016. If you are a parent or guardian, I hope you'll check out the guide that we've created for you to use when you hear about tech coming into your kid's classroom. So the exact questions that you should ask if your school says, we're raising money so we can put a tablet in the hands of every kid, or we're moving toward a blended learning model. Find the guide at note2selfradio.org. You can even print it out. 
bring it with you to back to school night. Hey, are you subscribed to Note to Self on iTunes? Even if you aren't, will you please rate us or leave a comment? Because it does wonders in terms of getting us in front of new listeners who may want to come and join our special human brand of tech coverage. Thanks for doing it. The Note to Self team is Jen Point, Jenna Cagle, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Rachel Neal, Megan Cunane, and Ben Mischiev for their help this week, too. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you for listening. Microgreens, microschools, microchildren. Okay. <laughs>